Uh, well, if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, we are starting a new study as a church, and we'll spend uh, most of our time this fall in this book. For those of you who are new, the way we do our teaching is most of the time we go straight through books of the Bible. Occasionally, we'll do a sermon that's just kind of based on a topic. We did uh, five in the last five weeks. But now we're jumping back into this book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, if you are new to the Bible, there's a Bible around you somewhere on a chair. If you don't own one, you can have that. But if you open it up to the middle, you'll probably be in the book of Psalms. And if you hang or write two books, you'll be in Ecclesiastes. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Um, this word Ecclesiastes, just real quick, some background while you're turning there. It's a word that just means the assembler. Um, and this means not somebody who assembles things like on a, on a line, but someone who assembles people. Uh, it was, this book was written by King Solomon, and it was the words that he spoke to the assembly of God's people who came out to hear his wisdom taught to them. In fact, there's a, a Greek word, ekklesia, which is really similar to this word ecclesiastes, and it's a word that's translated church in the New Testament, because the church is not the building, the church is the assembly of God's people who gather together um, to meet with one another, have fellowship with one another, pray for one another, and hear his word taught like it was taught back then. And the one who did this teaching, the one who did this writing, was the preacher king Solomon. And so Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this book never actually uses his name, King Solomon, but he was David's son as Solomon was. He was king in Jerusalem as Solomon was. He had wisdom and money and wealth like Solomon did. And so we look at this portrait, and it's clear that the, the son of David who's speaking here is King Solomon. Uh, and it's important for us to know, just before we jump in too much further, just know a little bit of the backstory of this book, know a little bit who Solomon was. Uh, David, his father, was king. He was the great King David. And then when he was dying on his deathbed, he made his son Solomon king. And so Solomon started out, and he was trying to lead this huge group of people. Uh, it was an overwhelming task to lead the thousands and thousands of people of God. Uh, there was so much that they had to learn, so much that that nation needed. And so God comes to him one night in a dream and basically offers him one wish. And I'll just read this, but in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? So he starts out as a young man, and he says, I'm supposed to be the king over all these people? I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I mean, how do you do that? How do you lead these people? How do I even know what to do? I feel like a little child. I know so little about what I'm supposed to do next. And so God comes and says, Solomon, every, anything you want, I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, God, more than anything, I want wisdom so that I can be a blessing to these people. I need to know how to lead them with an understanding mind. I need that from you. And so like Jesus, he gave up an opportunity to have comfort and pleasure. I mean, he could have wished for money. He could have wished for all his wishes. He could have wished for anything. But the one thing that he asked for was wisdom to be a blessing to other people. 
Just like Jesus, when he had you know, all the riches and all the comforts of heaven, stepped into this world and lived a life to be a blessing to others and then gave his life for others, Solomon, who was kind of like a smaller, little version, sinful version of Jesus, he comes and he says, God, the one thing that I really want is wisdom to be a blessing to these people. And so God sees someone who's living like Jesus, sees someone who wants to make sacrifices for the good of other people, wants to bless other people, and he honors that. So verse 10 It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and and honor, so that no king shall compare with you all your days. And if you'll walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So God comes and says, Solomon, you've asked for a good thing. You've asked for me to give you something that is there for the blessing of other people, so I'm going to give you that and more. You have that wisdom, and now you're also going to have money beyond any other king. You're going to have power beyond any other king. All of those things that you might have asked for, I'm going to give you those in abundance on top of all of that. So Solomon at this point becomes not just any other king, but this uber-wise preacher king who can lead his people from wisdom. And this is different than, than the way a lot of leaders would lead their people. A lot of kings in their day, they would lead their people by force, saying you have to do this by fear. Uh, You you lose your life if you don't. In our day, leaders will try to lead by the strength of their personality, by attracting people with with spin and, and a false version of who they are. But Solomon was able to lead this people with the wisdom of God. Uh, He he was so wise, and he got such a huge reputation for wisdom that people would travel from all over the world just to sit at his feet and hear him teach. And we have here in the book of Ecclesiastes some of the wisdom that he would give to other people. Uh, He he not only taught verbally, but he also did some writing. In fact, he had some bestsellers. He he wrote a whole bunch of psalms, which made it into the Bible, um, and that was a bestseller inspired by God. Uh, He wrote a whole bunch of proverbs. He wrote the Song of Solomon, which is a book about sex and romance to the glory of God. Uh, He wrote this book, Ecclesiastes. Uh, Maybe he also wrote another book called The Book of the Wisdom of Solomon, which is not inspired like these other ones are, but uh, still a bestseller, especially in Roman Catholic circles. Um, that was an apocrypha joke, but I um, <laughs> thought you'd think that was funny. But um, so he, uh, he has all these books that he wrote, and some of them, like Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, some of his Psalms and Proverbs, they were inspired by God. They were breathed into him by God, and he was able to use that wisdom to be a blessing to other people. So that's who, who Solomon was. He was the wisest man ever to live outside of Jesus Christ. He, he knew more than anyone. He understood the world better than anyone. And so he shared his wisdom with the world. And in this book, as we study through it, he's going to be sharing it with us, which means it is super valuable. Uh, I mean, if, if tomorrow you got a call on the phone and it was Warren Buffett, and he said, listen, i got a hot, hot stock tip for you. You would probably say, well, I'm going to invest there. <laughs> you just tell me what it is, and I'm going to find a way to get some money together and make that investment because you've proven that you've got wisdom in that area. You know how to invest. You know how to make billions. And so you just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Well, Solomon writes to us, and he writes with wisdom for life. He shows up us where real life is, where real meaning is to be found. And so we should read this book because we know we've got this wisdom that isn't just human, 
but was given by God, inspired by God, to tell us what life is all about. Which sounds encouraging, but then look at verse 2. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. A lot of your translations say all is meaningless. Well, that kind of stinks. Um, we're, we're expecting this great wisdom from Solomon. Imagine you're living in Jerusalem, 950 BC. You know that we've got this wise king, and you heard that he wrote a book. And now you're going to be able to hear this wisdom from this king. And so you've ordered his book, and the FedEx truck shows up with the Amazon.com box. And you come, and, or the donkey shows up with, with the Amazon box. And you open it, and you start reading. And here it is, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom from the king. He's going to tell you what life is all about. And he says, it's all meaningless. It's kind of a downer. And in fact, you read the rest of this book, and he spends somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 chapters supporting his conclusion that everything in life is meaningless. It's vanity. That word for meaningless can be translated a vapor. It's like your breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold winter morning where you see it, but it doesn't really have structure. It doesn't last. It's not meaningful. There's really nothing to it. Solomon looks at all of the world, and he says, it's pretty meaningless. All of it. Everywhere. Now, a lot of people have read this book and they've said, well, this doesn't really belong in the Bible. You read the rest of the Bible and you see a more optimistic picture of what God's doing with the world, that he made it for a reason, that he's coming back, that he's bringing a kingdom. Things are going to be different because of this God. And so in general, in the Bible, we have warnings about evil, but we have a pretty optimistic picture about the world and what God's doing. We read this book and it just seems like downer after downer after downer. And so some people have read it and they've said, you know, this really can't be part of the Bible. Because Christians have have always been people of joy, and you read this book, and it doesn't seem to give you any kind of joy at all. In fact, you read it, and you feel like you want to come alongside Solomon and say, listen, Solomon, man, it's okay. I mean, like, like things aren't this bad. I mean, do you need to, like, hang out, get out for a while, get some time off, maybe get some spa treatment or something? Like, you got to get some perspective. I know leadership is hard. It's tough. It's okay. It's not that terrible. you You can do this. You can keep going. He's so depressed all throughout the book. He's talking like everything's depressing, everything's hopeless, there's no future. He sounds like a Bills fan. Um, And so so you almost want to comfort him. In fact, most of the verses in this book, they're not going to show up on your inspirational Christian calendar with nature scenes and verses. Uh, you, You probably don't have a mug with a kitten on it playing with a ball of yarn with Ecclesiastes 1, 2. Everything is meaningless. Like these... These, they're not your inspirational verses. And and so we're going to spend a dozen weeks in this book, and you can imagine how depressed our church is going to be at the end of these 12 weeks if we miss what he's doing with the book. Because he is doing something that's really important. This book was written really as a series of talks from King Solomon where he went out and experimented with everything that the world has to offer to see if he could find real life, real meaning out there And he comes back and makes the report that it's not to be found out there, having experimented and tried it everywhere. I mean, he goes out, and because he had unlimited money, unlimited power, he goes out and he has every thrill imaginable, every pleasure imaginable, every experience imaginable, every form of wealth imaginable, every woman imaginable, or at least a cross-section of every woman, he had a thousand wives. He tries everything that the world has to offer, and he comes back from his reconnaissance mission, and he says, I have not found what I'm looking for. It doesn't do it for me. It's not enough. 
And so this book, Ecclesiastes, really is his memoir of testing out everything that the world has to offer and coming back and saying there's nothing out there for you. But the encouraging part and the thing that we really have to catch is that Solomon didn't look everywhere. One phrase that keeps coming up over and over and over again, you can see it in verse 3. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A phrase that keeps coming up throughout this book is that phrase, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. He's defining the area where he went to look for meaning. His experiment was not, I'm going to look into spiritual realities. I'm not going to look to God and try to find meaning in him. His experiment was, I'm going to go and live my life in this world, just in the natural world. I'm going to live almost like God doesn't exist. I'm living life like all there is to life is what's under the sun. I'm going to taste everything that the world has to offer. I'm going to try to experience everything that the world can give me and see if I can live a life apart from God that has meaning at all. And when he tries to live that life that's just under the sun, pushing God off to the side and experiencing the natural world, he comes back and he says there's no meaning to any of it. But what's encouraging for us is he didn't look everywhere. He lived life almost in some ways like an atheist, only he asked the hard questions that atheists would rather not ask. I mean, the truth is, if we are all here just by accident, then life really doesn't have meaning or purpose or direction. We're really not headed anywhere. I mean, we're headed toward oblivion. Even the feelings of love that you have for your spouse or for your children, they're just a weird chemical reaction. Um, They aren't real. There's nothing to it. This whole thing was an accident, and eventually it's all just going to go away. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. There is no direction. Now, what we tend to do, and I'm not saying at all that atheists are not good moral people at times. They can be very good and very moral people But what we tend to do when we try to live that life just under the sun, pushing God off to the side, is we don't tend to ask the hard questions that Solomon asked in this book. We tend to just go out and say, I'm just going to get a good job. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to have some fun. And on the weekends, just to be able to not ask those hard questions, there's there's football and there's alcohol. And I'll, I'll enjoy those things. And then that will give my life some little sense of, well, at least there's something there. But Solomon didn't allow himself not to ask the hard questions. He, he lived that life almost like an atheist for a while, but all the while he was asking himself all the hard questions. He was probing and finding that life really does have no meaning. It really does have no comfort. It really does have no purpose if all there is to life is life under the sun. So he discovered some things that are absolutely true if there is no God. In fact, Herman Melville read this book and he said, this is the truest of all books. Because it's so honest about life, about its hardships. He doesn't wear any rose-colored glasses at all. He asks the hard questions, and the conclusion he comes back with is, I've been everywhere under the sun, and there's no meaning there at all. But the purpose of this book is not to leave us depressed. The purpose of this book is to tell us where life and meaning are not, so that we can look for them where they actually are. He tells us where they can't be found, and he does it by experiment. He does us this great service by trying out everything that the world has to offer, all the things that we think would make us happy. He goes and he runs after it, and he comes back and he says, that doesn't do it. So we don't have to follow him in that experiment. We can go straight to the source of life and joy and meaning and happiness in Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we think, if I just had the money, if I just had the relationship, if I just had the house, that would do it for me. But we'll see as we go through this book, he tried the money, he tried the relationship, he tried the house, and he tried it better than any of us could ever try it. And he comes back and he says, there is nothing there. 
It's like chasing after the wind. Don't waste your life there. Don't bother there. Turn to the only source of real true joy, which is Jesus Christ. So he asks a lot of questions in this book, and the questions that he asks sets us up for the message of Jesus. He asks the questions that the gospel answers. He sets up the problems that the gospel fixes. And so this book of the Bible, like all books of the Bible, is written to point us to Jesus Christ. Some books just very explicitly say, turn to Jesus. He's the source of joy and hope. This book says, I'll try everything else and tell you there is no joy and hope there. So that's why we know to turn to Jesus. So this book is not a book designed to depress us. This is a book that's designed to to tell us what's out there so we don't have to waste our life trying it and we can go straight to the source of real joy. And he starts by explaining in verse 3 that one of the places that we look to try to find joy and meaning is that we think that maybe if I go out and try to really change the world, then I'll have some kind of peace, some kind of hope, some kind of meaning. My life will be worth living. But look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So there's this pattern throughout history that new generations come up and we say, you know, our parents really didn't have life figured out. They didn't know how the world works. They didn't know how church is supposed to work. They didn't know how politics are supposed to work. So we've got these new ideas and we think they're new because we don't read history. And we come out and we say, now I'm really going to change the world. Um, Because I've got this thing figured out. And so we try and we rise and things seem like they're going well. But then eventually we have kids and they grow up and they say, you know, our parents, they don't really know how the world works or how church works or how politics are supposed to work. We think we've got it figured out. So we're going to change the world. And the parents die and the new generation comes and they think they're changing the world. But then they have kids and their kids grow up and they say, you know, our parents really didn't know how all this works. But we think we've got it figured out. And Solomon said, I'm just going to back up and look at this whole thing. And what he sees is a big treadmill. That everybody gets on and runs for a while and we think we're going somewhere. We think we're making a difference. We think we're changing things. We think now we've got the new idea, the new ism, the new strategy to figure everything out and change everything. So we try it, we run after it. But ultimately, if we back up and look at the whole thing, we don't get anywhere. Everything stays the same. And he points us to nature to prove it. In nature, you see an awful lot of energy being expended, an awful lot going on, an awful lot of motion, but ultimately the world remains just as it was. Verse 5, he says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So he says, You got all that energy to get the sun to rise, and then it goes down and real quickly goes back to where it rose from again. It's just this big cycle of not getting anywhere. And he says, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. So it goes in circles and never gets anywhere. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So he says, all of nature, the whole world, it's one big, maddening waste of energy. Stuff just moves around but never accomplishes anything. All the might, all the power of Niagara Falls never ends up filling the oceans. It all just keeps moving around and around and around again. And he says, that's how life is under the sun. He says, you can't change things. Solomon didn't get invited to give a lot of graduation speeches. Um, (laughs) You may think you can change the world, but you can't. (laughs) It's going to be exactly the same. Don't bother. 
don't chase the wind. He he didn't get invited to a lot of that because he looked at the world and he said, listen, nothing is ever different. Nothing's ever done. We don't make any progress. You go out and you mow the lawn and it comes right back. You, You go and some of you, you get your hair cut and then it grows back and it doesn't look right anymore. You get the credit card paid off and it grows back and and fills in again. You think you're making progress, but you're not. You get your inbox down to zero emails and you feel like you are on the top of Mount Everest and then beep, 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 beep. And they they fill right back in again and it seems like you're never getting anywhere. You do the laundry, it's clean and folded and put away and then the hampers are full in days. There's all this energy and no real progress. You go on your diet and you lose your weight and you're doing great and then picnic season starts and you say, I'm just going to relax this summer, not going to weigh myself. And then in a couple months, you get back on the scale, you weigh yourself and the pounds are back and they brought their friends. And, <laughs> and it, it seems like, what, what do we gain from all of our toil under the sun? We're not getting anywhere. It's like the whole world is that movie Groundhog Day where we, we live a day And then we wake up the next morning and it's Groundhog Day again and again and again. It doesn't go anywhere. This is the truest of all books. Verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. He says all of life we exhaust ourselves looking for satisfaction and we can't find it anywhere. You know, if I could just see the world, then I'd be satisfied. If I could just experience something, then that would be enough for me. And he says, it never does it. If I could just hear something, if I could just download that next new album, finally, that'll be enough. But we're never, ever satisfied. He says, everywhere we look under the sun, there is no satisfaction. You say, that's right. We need some new ideas. We need some new stuff to actually change this place. Verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. He says, we think we've got a new idea, but really it's just an old idea recycled. And you say, yeah, but what about technology? I mean, that's new. That's something different. That changes our lives. I mean, this week on Tuesday, I'm going to be watching um, as Tim Cook comes down from Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and reveals what the new iPhone products will be. And this may be my first iPhone. So I'm going to watch and see what that product is that I'm going to have. And that seems like progress. I mean, my grandfather died and he had never talked on a cell phone in his life. And I'm going to watch and see this phone that I can talk to the world on. But ultimately, here's what's going to happen. I mean, my grandpa died never talking on the phone. I'm going to, to get one of these phones, maybe, spend a lot of time tapping on a piece of glass, and then I'm going to die like he did. And that's our progress. <laughs> We're getting somewhere now. Uh, I, there's this big difference that's been made by technology. Ultimately, it doesn't change anything ultimate. It doesn't change hearts. It doesn't change that cycle of life and death And we're all headed to that same place. Each new generation thinks they're coming up with some new thing, and finally it's the answer, but ultimately it's never the answer. You say, well, maybe the answer is living a life that will be remembered. You know, if I could be the kind of person that they write books about and they build monuments to, then that'll give me some sense of meaning. That'll make me feel like life was worth living. Verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things. It gets better. <laughs> Hang on. Don't, don't leave yet, okay? Uh, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to, me, yet to be among those who come after. He says, we really don't remember things. 
We watched this documentary about Easter Island where they have the big uh, statues that were carved long time ago, and nobody knows how they got there or exactly how they carved them or what they're supposed to represent, what they were there for. But I bet the people who were putting them up were thinking, this is a big deal. This is going to allow our cause to be remembered. This is going to allow our God to be remembered, our philosophy to be remembered. What we are all about, the world's always going to know because we're setting up these statues. And now there's a documentary where people are saying, yeah, they're really cool and big, but we don't know. Or, or Stonehenge. I mean, people went out and they built this monument to something. And they say, this will never be forgotten. Now the world is going to know what we believe. And now we make documentaries where we say, I don't know, maybe aliens built them. <laughs> like, that's that's the, the progress that we make in trying to be remembered. And Solomon looked at it honestly and he said, you know, that's pretty meaningless too. It's like chasing after the wind. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, and it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says, I've looked everywhere, and the whole world is one big hamster wheel. And we're in it, and we're running and running and thinking we're going somewhere, but it's not going anywhere. So now you're saying, okay, I came here to be uplifted. <laughs> and, and now I feel like I have to go home and have people keep me away from sharp objects. Like, this is, this is bad. This is not what I expected from church. But here's good news. Someone who's better than Solomon and who knows more than Solomon and who has seen more than Solomon came. Uh, Solomon was able to see all that the world has to offer under the sun but the world under the sun is not all there is to it. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus is talking. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So Solomon was the wisest mortal ever to live. But Jesus, the immortal one, came. And he's greater than Solomon because he was able to see with eyes that don't just see what's going on around us under the sun. He came with eternal wisdom. This is the God who left his eternal throne, who left his heaven, who knows what all of creation is ultimately all about, who sees all things past, present, and future, who knows where there's life, who knows where there's meaning. He came and he answered the questions that Solomon asked. And the message that he brought, the gospel message, is the one that has life and meaning and newness and all the things that our hearts are after, all the things we try to satisfy ourselves with, with the world under the sun, Jesus came and brought the real thing that can really do it for us. And this is good news. It, it's bad news if you're just living for this world, trying to find pleasure out there that you won't ultimately find it. But that bad news should lead you to the true good news, that there's something new in Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and he was the one to finally break the monotony. He's the one who came and he died and it seemed like it was the same old cycle. A new guy with a new idea and he's got all these people following him and he's just the next generation that's coming after the previous generation saying, I've got things figured out. And then eventually he dies, he's buried, but something totally new happened. He rose from the dead, confirming that, that his new thing was the real thing. His new thing was that new thing that we're after. And as you read throughout the Bible and you see the depressing matches of Ecclesiastes, the rest of the Bible says there is one new thing. There's one place where you can go to have new life, and that's in Jesus Christ. 
There's one place you can turn to actually have your heart made new. In Ecclesiastes, or I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, it says that when we come to faith in Jesus, he gives us a new heart. There's one place we can go to become an actually new person, a new creation. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that if we are in Christ, then we are a new creation. And then there's hope that one day something new will be coming to this world. In Revelation chapter 21, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. The future that we're headed toward is not just a world of cycles, sun going up, sun going down, nothing ever changing, but one who comes and invades and breaks the cycle and makes all things new to where 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we all have that sense that the world is not what it should be. But we make a mistake when we think that I'm ultimately the one who's going to change that. We have that sense that I want to have something new, but we make a mistake when we think that we're going to dream it up and we're going to come up with it. We make a mistake of thinking I can change this world in an ultimate heart-level way. We can make some changes and should make some changes and should do good for the world around us, but the one who changes people at the heart is Jesus Christ. This means that if we believe the gospel, if we really believe it, we have the cure for the cynicism that we naturally have and really that the book of Ecclesiastes presents. Now, it's not that Ecclesiastes isn't true. It's absolutely true. He's saying this is exactly what you'll get out of this world if there is no God and you just live for what's under the sun. But as Christians, because our eyes are lifted beyond just this world that's under the sun, we can have a cure for cynicism because Jesus will make things new. We can get really cynical when we give up hope that anything will ever be different. You know, we used to think it could because we were that new generation that was coming up and we were going to change things and now things would be different. It was supposed to be different for us, but then it wasn't. And so we're disappointed. We're, we're bummed out. We're depressed. We look at the world and we say it's all just chasing after the wind. But if we believe like we should believe that there's a kingdom coming that's going to make all things new, then that should be a cure for the cynicism that comes from just looking at life under the sun. I mean, sometimes we can just re retreat to that cynicism when we see those cycles, and it's a comfortable place to be. Nothing's ever going to be different. People are never going to change. It's always going to stay the same, and we can be bitter and depressed, and our lives can read just like the book of Ecclesiastes reads, unless we believe the gospel that says something new is coming. You know, I, it's easy to just look at myself and get cynical. I'm not going to change I've tried to change before. I've tried. This time, I'm going to keep going in my Bible reading. This time, I'm going to keep praying. This time, I'm not going to sin. This time, I'm going to be different. And I just keep falling, and I see those cycles. And it's like the sun rising, the sun going down. All this energy is spent, but it doesn't seem like it's getting me anywhere. But the promise of the gospel is that Jesus is going to come and even change me. It's easy sometimes to give up on other people. We see other people, and they come to this new and exciting relationship with Jesus, and it things, seems like things are different, seems like their life's being changed, but then they just go downhill, and they're in a place of complacency, or even come into a place where they say, I never really believed. But if we believe the gospel, then we have to believe in a Jesus who will even make them new. You know, sometimes it's easy to just give up on church, to give up on serving and exhausting ourselves and working for, for this kingdom that seems like it's supposed to be coming and changing people's hearts because we don't see the progress and it just seems like we're chasing after the wind. But as Christians, we believe that there's a kingdom coming that will change people and will change the people of God. 
It's easy to give up on work, give up on the marriage, give up on the kids, give up on praying because it just seems like it's not getting anywhere. But we need to believe Jesus who said, I'm coming back. It will be made new someday. Someday, everything will change. So while we should be realistic when we look at the world around us, we've got to remember that the world around us is not everything that there is. So we need to repent. We need to repent of our negativity, of our cynicism, of living like all that matters is this life that's under the sun. And we need to be again the people who tell and believe a story about a kingdom that's coming that's going to make all things new. So as much as there are setbacks and frustrations and horrible things here and vanity and chasing after the wind left and right, one day things will be different. Jesus is different. Jesus is the one who brings new life, and that makes all the difference in the world. The Spirit is at work in the world. The gospel is at work, and one day he's going to return, and it will be very, very different because he did. And so that should be a source of joy and optimism. And we should be warned by Solomon not to look for that joy anywhere just under the sun. So for now, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes, please. So Christians, how have we, have we gotten? Have we gotten to that place of cynicism? Have we gotten to that place where we're kind of downers and we feel like there is no good to ever be done and all of the world is just chasing, under the sun, chasing after the wind and we live this life under the sun? Let's repent of living like this world is all that there is. Let's turn from that and turn again to Jesus. Confess that sin. Confess that lack of faith in what he's doing in the world and what he's going to do in the world so that we can have that sense of optimism and hope in Jesus Christ renewed and just have it placed in the right place. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're experiencing this. I mean, maybe you're experiencing that the world seems to have nothing to offer. You keep getting these things you thought would do it for you and they never do it for you. And the answer for that is that it can't do it for you. You have this eternal hole in your heart. You have this, this God-sized hole in your heart that won't be satisfied with anything else. And so today would be a good day to turn from those pursuits of life under the sun and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus came to die to pay the price for your sins, that he was buried and that he rose again. And as you turn from sin and unbelief and the old hopeless way of living, you turn to him, believe in him and hope in him. He will make you new. He'll change you and he'll give you the promise that everything that's not renewed right away when you trust in him, one day will be new. We should continually renew your sense of optimism and hope. And so cry out to him, not in any special words, just cry out and say, God, I know my sinfulness. I know I've fallen short. I know this world has nothing to offer me. And so Jesus, I'm turning to you. Turning to you is ultimate. Trusting in you is ultimate. Transform me. Make me new. Forgive me. And give me joy. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the honesty that we see here. Thank you that you've given us the truest of all books so that we could trust in the truest of all men. And so, so Lord, let this book renew our faith in Jesus. Let it dispel any illusions that we have that this world can satisfy or that there's anything here that will do it for us. And Lord, let it drive us to you more than ever. Lord, I pray at the end of this study that we would know Jesus more, we'd trust Jesus more, uh, we, we would be less optimistic that this world can solve our problems, but more optimistic than ever because we trust in the Jesus who ultimately will solve them all and will make all things new. So Lord, help us to believe that. 
renew us, transform us. And I pray that week after week as we're in this book, you'd help us to see the light at the end of the tunnel and the joy that you offer. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.